This Parsha podcast is dedicated by the family of Daniel, Daniel, Zev, Ben Miriam, in honor of all the Parsha podcast listeners who have prayed for him. About a year and a half ago, Daniel, Zev, Ben Miriam's family, you may recall, dedicated a podcast in the merit of his speedy and total recovery. He had contracted a severe case of COVID, and then they discovered that he had cancer as well. So we asked the Parsha podcast family to pray for his merit. Now, thank God, Daniel Zev Ben Miriam is doing well. He finished his treatment and is nearly over all the side effects. And his family wanted to dedicate this week's Parsha podcast in appreciation for all the Parsha podcast listeners who prayed for his recovery. It's really amazing how many people prayed for him, how many people reached out to me to inquire about his well-being. Thank you so much for caring for your fellow Parsha podcast listener and family member. We have something really special going on over here. We're, of course, based in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, but the Parsha podcast family spans the world over, and I feel so fortunate to be a part of this. We have a fun and enlightening podcast to wrap up 2022 with, with the help of the Almighty and with your dedicated listenership. We were able to release a new podcast every single week in 2022. There was one week that did not even have a Parsha. That was the week of Pesach. And we did a special episode to not take a break, to keep it up. And that's only possible due to y'all, the listeners and the family members of the Parsha podcast. And I would be negligent if I didn't remind y'all that this is the last week of 2022. If you have yet to support our organization, Torch, in 2022, you could still do that. Visit our website. The link is in the description to the podcast, this podcast, and all the ones that come out of our organization. Partner with us. Join with us to teach Torah, to spread Torah, which we pledge to do with vigor and with devotion and with dedication and with commitment, of course, with the help of the Almighty. This this really impacts people, including this kind listener who sent in the following testimonial. I've been following talks for the last few years. And for me, it has completely opened up my life. And I say that because I'm actually blind. So the audios which I listen to and the explanations, the questions, the answers have even more meaning to them. Talks lives up to its name. It lights up my pathway through the parishas and all of the other wonderful podcasts which are produced. It gives me a way of seeing my way through and helps me to be guided forward. So I thank Torch for everything they are doing for everybody out there. And this is why they need you to fund everything they're doing so that they can light up the pathways and routes for others. And again, 
Thank you so much. And Baruch Hashem. This is really inspiring to me. I know of four listeners who have reached out who are either completely blind or severely limited in their vision, legally blind, and it's just remarkable how they are unfailingly optimistic and cheerful. Some of the happiest, the most positive people that I know suffer, or we would think they're, they're suffering, but they're just happy and they're just, it's such an inspiration. And we're fortunate to be able to create audio experiences that can provide enriching learning opportunities for the sighted and those who are not able to see. The website is torchweb.org. The email address is rabbiwallbeatable.com. Let's begin. Today's Parsha podcast is going to orient around a fun and interesting question with two approaches that will, I think, give us invaluable life lessons. I'll also say something that you're not going to like. It's going to make you a little mad, but I will warn you ahead of time so you know when you want to step a few minutes ahead in the podcast. So let's begin. The saga of Joseph gets resolved in our Parsha. He reveals himself to his brothers, and they're shell-shocked, they're stunned, and they can't say a thing to him, and he comforts them. He calms them down. He reassures them. Go back to Canaan. Go gather your family. Go gather your father, our father, Jacob, and come down to Egypt. The brothers hustle back home, and Jacob initially doesn't believe them. And then the verse tells us, he sees the wagons and his spirit is enlivened. Rashi tells us an amazing thing. The spirit of Jacob became alive. The Shekhinah, the divine presence, rested itself upon him again. His prophecy was restored. And he felt alive. His spirit was alive. And the family unwinds their affairs in Canaan. And they travel down to Egypt. And the verse tells us, chapter 46, verse 5 and 6, that Jacob descended down to Egypt. They left Beersheba and they carried Jacob and all their children and all their wives in these special wagons that Pharaoh had sent. And they took their animals, they took their sheep and their possessions and their wealth that they had acquired in the land of Canaan. And they came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants. So you read this verse, it sounds like it's just giving us a description of what happened when Jacob and his family descended down to Egypt. But there's a nuance that we would overlook, but Rashi doesn't overlook any nuances. And Rashi points out that there are some redundancies, there's some extra words in this verse. They took all their animals and their wealth that they acquired in the land of Canaan. And they came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants. The verse says that they took their wealth, their assets, their material possessions that they had acquired in the land of Canaan. Why do those words appear? Asher rachashu Barat's Canaan. Why do those words appear? So Rashi tells us, and we quoted this in some previous podcasts, 
Rashi tells us that the only possessions that Jacob took with him down to Egypt were the ones that he acquired in the land of Canaan. That's not the only place where Jacob amassed wealth. You may recall, he spent 20 years in Padan Aram, living with Laban, and he emerged from that very wealthy. Yet when he comes down to Egypt to reunite with Joseph, of course, to begin the Jewish people's hundred, multi-hundred year, multi-century sojourn in a foreign land, as was foretold to Abraham in the Covenant of the Parts that we always reference, chapter 15 of Genesis. He's going down to Egypt, and he's taken with him only the wealth that he acquired in the land of Canaan. What about the wealth that he acquired in Padan Aram? So Rashi tells us that wealth he did not take with him. He gave it to Esav. He gave it to Esav in exchange for Esav's burial spot in the cave of the patriarchs. Jacob took all the wealth that he had acquired in Padan Aram, all the wealth that he had acquired over 20 years living with Laban, and he made it into a big pile. And he says, I don't want this money. This is money that I earned outside the land of Israel. It's not worth anything to me. You take it. Just give me, in exchange, a small little parcel of land, a small little plot in that old cave that our family owns. Remember that cave that Abraham bought from Ephron? The Hittite for 400 silver coins. There's one more spot there. I don't want the money that I earned out in the land of Israel. You take it. Give me the spot. And they agreed. Now, I am contractually obligated to note that our organization, Torch, does not have that same scruples that Jacob had. We're happy to accept donations that come from the Holy Land and donations that come from the diaspora. Every currency we take, we take also scrap metal and stamp collections, baseball cards, used cars. Not Jacob. Jacob, he doesn't want the possessions that he had earned outside the land. He makes a big pile, all the gold, all the silver, and he exchanges it, gives it to Esau for the last burial spot in the cave. The cave only had eight spots. Seven were occupied. Adam and Eve... Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob's wife, Leah. There's one spot remaining, and Jacob covets that spot. But, after all, he's a twin, he's got a brother, and therefore, one spot was Jacob's, and now his wife is already there, Leah. The other spot, by right, belongs to Esau. Jacob says, okay, do you see this big pile? Big pile of gold and silver? All the wealth that I accumulated in the house of Laban, it's all yours in exchange for this spot. Now, there is an interesting postscript to this transaction. The Talmud gives us a detailed account of Jacob's funeral procession and how Esav tried to interfere and he was assassinated the Talmud tells us that after Jacob passes in Eshri's Parsha, 
they brought his body to the cave and the tribes of Esav and the tribes of Ishmael, they came to interfere. They wanted to make war with Joseph. But then they saw Joseph's crown atop the bier of Jacob and they took their crowns off and they put it atop the coffin and they proceeded to the cave. And they arrive at the cave and Esav is there. And Esav says, well, that last spot, it's mine. Jacob already used his spot to bury his wife Leah. I don't allow Jacob to be buried here. But the family says, wait a minute, don't you remember what happened? You sold it. I sold it? I don't remember that transaction. Where's the documentation? Show me the contract. And the brothers remembered, oh no, we left it in Egypt. We left the contract in Egypt. So they sent Naphtali, who was the swiftest of them all. He was like a deer. Go hustle back to Egypt, find that document, and bring it here so we could bury Jacob. So there's this very large procession taking Jacob to the cave, and everything is halted due to Asaph. And the Talmud tells us that there was one grandson of Jacob who was deaf, Hushim, Hushim, the lone son of Dan. He was deaf. So he didn't really understand what was happening initially, but he did notice that the procession was not proceeding. So he communicated to someone, what's going on? Why aren't they burying Jacob? It's a great disgrace to a dead person when they're just sitting around there in traffic waiting to be buried. Of course, the Allah is very strict about this. It's imperative to bury the body as soon as possible. So Jacob's body is lying there in disgrace and the deaf grandson of Jacob is trying to piece together what's going on and they tell him or they communicate to him that man... That aging, redhead, ruddy guy, he's stopping the burial procession. Chushim says, what? We're waiting for Naftali to come back down, for come come back from Egypt? Until then, Jacob's either in disgrace. I'm not going to allow it. He pulls out a sword. He chops off Esav's head. Esav's head rolls into the cave, and Jacob is buried. That's the postscript to the story of the transaction wherein Esav conveyed the rights to to the burial spot to Jacob in exchange for all the wealth that Jacob had acquired in the land of Padanaram while living with Laban. They had arrived at an agreement. He got the final burial spot. Jacob piled it up all the gold and all the silver. And Esav agreed to the exchange. He tried to deny it later on, of course. And he was beheaded by Hushim for his efforts. Okay, here's where it gets interesting. When did this transaction happen? When did the transaction between Jacob making the big pile of gold and silver, 
giving it to Esav in exchange for the burial spot. When did that happen? So we know, of course, Jacob and Esav, they're twins. And after Jacob usurps the blessings, he has to flee, comes back 20 years later. And Parshas Vayishlach, Jacob has a whole memorable encounter with Esav. He sends messengers. He prepares for the encounter in all kinds of ways, with a bribe, with prayer, with preparations for conflict, for war. The messengers come back with an ominous report. Esav is marching your way. He's got 400 men with him. And Jacob has to encounter Esav first, wrestling with the angel of Esav for the whole night. And then he meets Esav and he bows seven times and he neutralizes the threat. And then Esav says, well, let's reunify like the old times. Let's live together. And Jacob deftly avoids that. And then Esav leaves. And he relocates to Mount Seir. And that is the last time, apparently, that Jacob and Esav met. So when did this transaction, where Jacob takes all the gold and all the silver and makes a big pile and exchanges it for the last burial spot? So the Midrash tells us that there was actually one more time where Jacob and Esav met. And that's by the funeral of Isaac. At this funeral, says the Midrash, that is when Jacob and Esav had this transaction. That by the funeral, Isaac is being interred in the seventh spot. There's one more spot there. By right, it belongs to Esav. Jacob takes all the gold and all the silver, all the wealth that he had amassed in Padanaram, and he points to the grave and he points to the gold. Which one do you want, Esav? Which one do you prefer? I will give you all the gold and all the silver that's piled up high in exchange for the rights to be buried here. And that's when Esau makes his choice. And they write up a contract. And now, when Jacob is descending down to Egypt, he takes all his wealth that he acquired in Canaan. The wealth that he acquired from Laban. All that is now Esau's. And of course, that document gets left in Egypt, leading to Esau's decapitation by Chushim. Here's the insight. This transaction, the sale of the burial spot, the eighth spot, this is not the only transaction that happens between Jacob and Esau. There are two transactions between Jacob and Esau that occur in the Torah. This one, of course, is only hinted to. We get the details in the Midrash. Rashi brings it down. The other one, of course, is more explicit in the Torah. Jacob acquires the birthright for a bowl of lentils that happens in Parshas Toldos. And that's the first transaction. And then we have the second transaction, the eighth burial spot in the cave in exchange for the pile of gold and silver. 
It should be noted that Esav drove a harder bargain in the second transaction than he did in the first. But listen to this. When did the other transaction occur? The birthright for the bowl of soup. When did that happen? So we know the story. Jacob's making lentils. And Esav comes in and he's tired. And he says, I'm going to die. Feed me from the red, red, red stuff. Pour it down my throat like a camel. Jacob says, great, we have a deal. Just give me the birthright. It's a done deal. I'm going to die. What do I need the birthright for? And he gave him the bread and the lentil soup. And Esav consumes it. And he insults the birthright. Gives it up for something so trivial. Well, when did that first transaction happen? So the verse is not explicitly revealed to us, but the Talmud in the book of Abbasra, page 16b, does. Says the Talmud, on that day, Abraham died. And Jacob was making the lentils because that was comfort food to comfort, to console his father, Isaac. The Talmud explains that there's a reason why he used specifically lentils. This is a consolation food. Why? Because just like lentils don't have a mouth, there's no crack, there's no crevice in it like other legumes have. So too the mourner. The mourner has no mouth. He has to sit in silence. He has no words to say. One opinion. Second opinion. Why specifically lentils? Because lentils, after all, they're round. They're spherical. And this is a way to comfort the mourner suffering. The experience that you're going through comes around for everyone eventually. There's no way to avoid a degree of suffering in life. And that's comforting to know that you're not the only one that's suffering. That's a consolation. And that's why Jacob was making this food in particular for his father, Isaac, because that day Abraham died. This is a stunning observation. Jacob and Esau made two transactions, and both of them occurred at funerals. On the day that Abraham died, Jacob gives the lentils to Esau in exchange for the birthright. On the day that Isaac died, or at least was buried, Jacob makes a pile of gold and silver, all the wealth that he had acquired in Padan Aram, outside the land of Israel, and exchanges it for the burial spot. Now, if you do the math, these two transactions occurred 105 years apart. Do the math. Abraham is 100 years older than Isaac. Abraham passed away at the age of 175, making Isaac 75 when Abraham passed. And Isaac himself, well, he passed away, the verse tells us, at the age of 180, so 105 years later. There are two transactions between Jacob and Esau, both happened at funerals, 105 years apart. If you do the math as well, Isaac was 60 when Jacob and Esau were born, thus at the burial or at the death of Abraham, Isaac was 75 and the boys were 15. The exchange of the lentils for the soup happened when Jacob and Esau were 15. 
And the pile of gold for the burial spot happened when they were 120. And here's the question. I think it's a delightful question. A question that's worthy to end off 2022 with this question. Why are these transactions, the only transactions between these twins that we are aware of, why are they happening specifically around funerals? Specifically around the death of Abraham and Isaac. Can it be a coincidence? Is there perhaps some deeper meaning to the fact that these two transactions between Jacob and Esau both occurred around the death of their father and grandfather, respectively? So I want to suggest two approaches. The first one is more of a general idea that can be broadly applied to many areas of our life and certainly our philosophy. The second one's much more of a targeted insight that can really serve as a, as a wake-up call for us in our lives. We've learned enough about Asav to know that he really represents the Eitzahara. We spoke about this a few weeks ago. The fight against the Yetzirah never stops. You always need to have the force of Joseph around to overcome this nefarious foe of ours. You read so much about Esau and the interactions that Jacob has with him, and that can be very instructive to us in our battle against the Yetzirah. Perhaps the insight that we can draw from these transactions occurring specifically around the passing of the great giants, Abraham and Isaac, is the following. This principle we've seen a few times, I think, before on the Parsha podcast. It's an idea that's a well-developed idea in our philosophy, and that is that the Yetzirah is always winnable. You could always defeat the Yetzirah. There's never a situation where the Yetzirah is such an overwhelming juggernaut that it cannot be defeated. The greater a person is, the more ability that they have, the greater their Yetzirah is. Why? Because the challenges are always going to be commensurate to the abilities that a person has to withstand and overcome and triumph in those challenges. And therefore, if someone is more feeble, weaker, they're going to have a weaker answer, weaker, easier challenges. If someone has tremendous ability and tremendous strength and tremendous intestinal fortitude, they're a greater person. I hate to say it, they're going to be presented with much stiffer challenges. It's always going to be balanced. Now, there are many examples to illustrate this idea, but I'll give you a few of them. The Talmud in the book of Tzubas, page 33b is talking about three heroes of our history, Hanania, Mishal, and Azariah. These three were tempted by the Babylonians to do idolatry. 
Do idolatry or else we kill you. And these three heroes, they were thrown into a furnace. And they willingly accepted their fate. And they did not want to bow down to any idols. Now, the Almighty made a miracle and they survived. But the Talmud tells us something really interesting. If the Babylonians, instead of throwing them into a furnace, if the Babylonians tortured them, started prying off their fingernails and just endless torture, then they would have capitulated. Torture is even more harmful, more painful than death. And therefore, says the Talmud, had they been tortured, they would not have been able to withstand and they would have yielded. So it's been pointed out that the Babylonians obviously didn't know this because the Babylonians really wanted these three Jews to worship the idols. And they thought that the way to do it is threaten them with, with death. But the truth is the way to do it was to torture them. Why didn't the Babylonians torture them? The answer is that such a test would be unwinnable. And a challenge must always be tailored to a person's ability to to win. The free will has to exist. And therefore, if there's a situation that torpedoes the free will, well, that situation cannot come into existence. And therefore, the Almighty made sure that they were not presented with a challenge that they could not, in fact, succeed in. There always has to be balance in the system. And this demands, for example, we spoke about this a few years ago, if there is a Moshe, there has to be a force that is as strong as Moshe, but playing for the other team. There has to be a Bilam. There has to be a prophet who can rival Moshe in his skill and ability, but is pushing the people to reject God. We spoke about this also as well in the context of Dathan and Abiram. If there's a Moshe, there has to be an anti-Moshe. If there is an Aaron, there has to be an anti-Aaron. There has to be a countervailing force, because otherwise the system would be out of whack. It would be skewed to one side. So there always has to be a counterweight to either side. And we speculated in that Dathan and Abiram podcast that once these two rabble-rousers were condemned to die, that actually sealed the fate of Moshe and Aaron because there cannot be a Moshe without an anti-Moshe. There cannot be an Aaron without an anti-Aaron. Now, the flip side, what happens when a great tzaddik dies? If there's a great tzaddik, a great righteous person, a beacon, a luminary, an exemplar, if that person dies, one of two things must happen. Either a replacement arrives. The Talmud tells us that on the day that Rabbi Akiva died, his replacement 
was born. Rabbi Judah the Prince was born on the exact day that Rabbi Tiva died. The sun set and the sun rose. The son of Rabbi Tiva set and the son of Rabbi Judah the Prince rose to replace it. There always has to be a compensation for what was lost. But what else can happen when a great tzaddik passes away, a great righteous person passes away? It could be that the opposite force loses some of its power as well, thus restoring the equilibrium in the system. The forces of good and bad must always be calibrated. Otherwise, the central point in the world that people are given the opportunity to overcome evil with their free will gets disrupted. So there's a constant balancing act keeping things balanced. So another example of this, the Talmud tells us that the desire for idolatry The asa makes no sense. Who wants to genuflect to some figurine? Why would people do that? What's the appeal? Why would someone want to submit themselves to figurines of wood and stone? Makes no sense to us. And the reason why it makes no sense to us is because that desire went extinct. However, what else went extinct when idolatry went extinct? The answer is prophecy. If you have a prophet in your midst, you have to have a desire for idolatry as well. Otherwise, themes would not be balanced. If there's a prophet and the prophet is speaking the word of God and the prophet's doing miracles and the prophet's prophecy and legitimacy and veracity has been vetted and proven to be legit and there's no idolatry, That's it. Everyone's following the prophet. Thus, idolatry and prophecy must go out, must be extinct simultaneously. Esav is the Yitzhara. To fight the Yitzhara, we have Abraham, we have Isaac, we have Jacob. Those forces represent good, the soul, the Yitzhar Tov, the good inclination. Esav, the Yitzhara, cannot be unduly empowered. There has to always be sufficient counterweight to offset it. We spoke about this in the theme of the forefather and forenkel podcast from a few weeks ago. It's the same idea. From a different perspective, of course. We talked about from the perspective of the forefather this is from the perspective of the world. The world, if you're going to have a Yetzirah, you have to have a Yetzirah Tov of equal strength. So perhaps we can suggest, when Abraham died, Esav had to be reduced. His force had to be curtailed. If there's a reduction in the force of the soul, in holiness, in righteousness, in kindness, in goodness in the world there necessarily must be a concomitant reduction in the force of Esav. If Abraham expires from the world, there has to be some way to restore the symmetry. There has to be a parallel and equal 
reduction of the force of Esav. And thus, we see when, when Abraham dies, Esav's spiritual assets transferred to the other side. He had the birthright. And of course, what does that mean? It means that there was some spiritual force that Esav had that he was able to wield to advance his agenda. And that had to go to the other team in order to maintain the, the balance, the, the symmetry. And when Isaac died, that had to happen again. Oh, and what happened when Jacob died? When Jacob was buried, Asaph was decapitated. It cannot be that Asaph survives, even in a reduced manner, if Jacob's not there to serve as a counterweight for him. There must always be balance in the system. And this is, I think, a powerful idea for us. We're never going to be faced with a test that we cannot succeed in. And if someone is tested in a very difficult way, if their Asaph seems to be so strong and so mighty and so capable and so gifted with so many assets fighting for its cause, that can serve as ample evidence that you actually also have enormous ability and strength within you. That's one way to answer perhaps the curiosity that these two transactions both happen in concurrence with the passing of Abraham and Isaac. I want to suggest a second answer. I was actually thinking to do, we'll do just one answer. It's the last episode of 2022. The kids are all home. There's chaos and pandemonium in the Wolby household. One answer is enough, but no. We don't just, we don't settle here at the Parsha Pot. We take things really seriously. We could do two answers, two ideas, two approaches to enrich the lives of the Parsha Podcast family. Let's, let, let's do it. Let's, let's go ahead. Here's the second idea I want to suggest. And if you like these ideas, if you don't like them, you could always send me an email. Send me a text. You, of course, know my email address. But if you don't, you'll find it in the description of the podcast. Here's the second idea I wanted to posit. The notion of the fragility of human life, that we're, we're mortal, our time here is temporary, that idea triggers very different sentiments in different people. If you participate in a funeral or any sort of post-mortem activities, it's a very, it's a very sobering experience. Everyone remembers that we're not here forever. We're only here temporarily. Of course, everyone knows that theoretically, but you get a very tangible reminder of that participating in a funeral. As we've spoken about in the past, this can be very valuable. The verse tells us it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of revelry. Why? Because all the people that are still alive, they'll take that lesson to heart. It will encourage you to live more purposefully, more intentionally. 
It'll ensure or it'll encourage you to make more of your life while you still have that precious and most cherished of gifts. Now, the Talmud tells us that our responsibility is to defeat our Yetzirah. And how do we do it? Well, we do it in one of four different ways. Number one, we struggle with the Yetzirah. We try to use our Yetzir Tov, our good inclination, to frustrate and agitate and overcome the evil inclination. And if that works to defeat the Yetzirah, then fantastic. But if it doesn't, then we study Torah. And if that works to defeat the Yetzirah, then great. And if not, we recite the Shema. And if that works to defeat the Yetzirah, then fantastic. And if not, we remind it of the day of death. The most effective technique to defeat, or at least to quash the Yetzirah, is to remind it of the day of death. Now, this short citation from the Talmud, from the book of Brachos, page 5a, it actually makes up the bulk of part three of my book, Upon a Ten-Stringed Harp. And we go through every one of these approaches to defeat the Yetzirah, to at least resist, to overcome, to minimize, to neutralize the Yetzirah. But we discover that just encountering the day of death, remembering the day of death, can help you defeat or at least to some degree combat, weaken your formidable foe. However, this is not a universal experience. In fact, for some people, it can have the opposite effect. When some people encounter the notion of their mortality, it actually triggers the opposite effect. Instead of being an impetus to defeat the Sahara, it exacerbates the Sahara. Take a look at Esav. What did Esav say to justify the sale of his birthright? The verse tells us, chapter 25, verse 32. Esav, and Esav said, I'm going to die. Why do I want the birthright? What do I need it for? When Esav thought of his demise, he said, why do I need spiritual benefits? I prefer the red, red, red stuff. When Esau thought of his demise, he willingly forfeited eternity, eternal benefits, in exchange for simple, ephemeral, fleeting, passing, temporary pleasures. I think this helps us make sense of these transactions and why they happen specifically around funerals. Jacob was someone that whenever he was around this idea of the day of death, he was extra motivated to acquire spiritual benefits, to strengthen, to give an oomph to his spiritual self, and to devalue, de-emphasize, deprioritize the physical and material aspects of life. That is what Jacob took away from this encounter. Asaph had the opposite inclination by funerals, to deprioritize the spiritual and to augment the value of the physical and the material. 
And thus, it's no surprise that the meeting of the minds, where, where Jacob acquired the spiritual and gave up the physical, and Esau acquired the physical and gave up the spiritual, it makes a lot of sense that these are going to happen around funerals. Now, before I say the thing that I promise will make you mad, I want to give some context to this idea, taking it maybe a step further. Why, in fact, is it so? Why do different people have different reactions to funerals? So perhaps we can speculate. When someone comes into contact with their own pending demise, they are motivated to make the most of life. When you realize your life here, it's temporary, it's so precious, yet it's so fleeting, you automatically feel a motivation to maximize the life that you have while you still have it. But what is life? What are you trying to augment? If you look in our partial, we have two competing definitions of what life even is. When Jacob was informed that Joseph is still alive, and the verse is, Vatichi Ruach Yaakov Avihem, the spirit of Jacob was given life. Rashi tells us, what does it mean? What does it mean that Jacob had life? It means he had prophecy. The definition of life to Jacob was prophecy, was living with a deep connection with the Almighty. When Joseph was not around, Jacob was depressed. When you're depressed, you cannot have prophecy. And thus, for 22 years, Jacob felt like he was dead. To live, to breathe, to walk around, to smoke cigarettes, to have your brain and your heart operate. That's not life for Jacob. What constitutes life? Spiritual life. A connection with the Almighty. A connection on the level that Jacob had. Later on in the Parsha, Jacob has a very memorable encounter with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh sees this man who looks so old. He looks like he's a thousand years old. How old are you? He inquires. And Jacob, in chapter 47, verse 9, has a very seemingly convoluted answer. He says, well, the years of my sojourn are 130, but the years of my life were very few and very bad. And I did not acquire in my years of sojourn the years of life that my forefathers acquired in the years of sojourn. This is a very, very long and wordy answer. He could have said just 130. How how old are you? 130 years old. What Jacob is revealing to us is there are two definitions of life. Years of sojourn. How many years have you inhabited the earth? How many years of residence did you have in this earth? You were breathing. You had brain function. Your heart rate was going. You were able to walk and to eat and to drink and to see interface of the world as a body. Those are years of sojourn, years of resonance. But that's not life. Of those years, I was only spiritually alive, much less than my forebearers. Jacob's definition of life is 
to actually live as a soul. And those years, Jacob laments to Pharaoh, weren't quite on the level of Abraham and Isaac. That is one definition of life, Jacob's definition. By contrast, when Joseph fed the Egyptians, the verse tells us, chapter 47, verse 26, the Egyptians were so appreciative of Joseph, Bayomru, and they said, Hechayisanu, you have given us life. When Jacob had prophecy, he had life. When the Egyptians had bread, they had life. These are very different definitions of life. What does someone do? How does someone respond when they encounter their demise or even the notion of their demise? Well, they want more life. Well, what does it mean? It depends. How do you define life? If you're like Jacob, when he is reminded of his temporality, he seeks more of Jacob life, more prophecy, more holiness, more righteousness, more emulation of God, more soulful pursuits, more assets of the soul, the birthright, the burial spot, the connection with Abraham and Isaac. By contrast, when Asaph is about to die, when he's at a funeral, when he's reminded of his mortality, he instinctively gravitates towards seizing more life of his type, of his variety. That life doesn't look at all like the life of Jacob. More food, more red, red, red stuff, more gold and silver make a big pile, more material pleasures, more base physical pleasures. And thus, it should come as no shock, therefore, that the two transactions where Jacob forfeited something physical to Esau, and Esau forfeited something spiritual to Jacob, both of them happened at funerals. Everyone wants more life. But not everyone defines life the same. And your definition of life determines how you behave when the specter of death is upon you. The Talmud tells us that remembering the day of death is a very potent way to overcome the Yitzharah. But I point out in my book, the Talmud gives us a prescribed sequencing. First, you struggle with it. And then if that works great, if not, well, then you move on to Torah. And if that works great, if not, you read the Shema. And then you remember the day of death. Remembering the day of death will help you it will be a tool, a catalyst to overcome the Yetzirah, provided that it was first preceded with other activities that changed, reoriented, adjusted your definition of life. You struggle with the Yetzirah. You try to overcome the Yetzirah. You study Torah. You pursue the spiritual. You recite the Shema. You remember God. If you have ample of those preceding the remembering of the day of death, then in fact, it will help you overcome the Yetzahara. Now here's why I say something that's going to make you mad. Every time I've said this, it's made, I think everyone who listens to it mad. I like to say it anyhow. I'm a, a bit of a provocateur, perhaps we can say. It's the end of 2022. We're so deep into the podcast that we know that um, most of the audience probably already dropped out. 
So I could say something that's a little provocative, and I'm acknowledging that it is, and I know it's going to make you mad. So just, if you don't want to be mad here at the end of the year, oh, Rabbi Walby did it again. Just, just fast forward a few minutes. Don't say they don't warn you. Okay. Prepare to be mad. This is why I think that the Make of Wish Foundation, that is Asav. That's exactly what Asav would do. God forbid someone's going to die. Even worse, a child's going to die. It's the worst tragedy that we could fathom. <laughs> I know it's making people mad already. It's making me mad. <laughs> so forgive me. But I'm trying to illustrate a point. That is exactly the ace of way of dealing with someone's pending demise. How can I experience more pleasure for my body? How can I get more out of this world? How do I maximize my experiences? Let me go to Disneyland. Let me meet my favorite this. Let me see this. Let me see that. How can I drink and be merry for tomorrow? I'll die. This is going to illustrate a point in a way that you'll never forget it, even though I knew it would rankle you. The principles I want to convey. So someone's going to come out of the podcast and say, well, Rabbi Walby says the Make-A-Wish Foundation is Asaf, which is kind of what I'm saying, but the, the principle is more important. We're here on a mission. We're here on a mission. Don't forget this. We're here to do something. We were sent by God to do something. And the physical world, the material world, that's the distraction. That's the Eitzhara. And of course, you know, you need it. You need to have sustenance. Because that's, after all, how your soul can only operate if the body's well-fed and maintained. But what's the goal? What's life all about? The Eitzhara, we must remember, is the impediment. Jacob's life is the pursuit of the agenda of the soul. Torah, mitzvahs, things that last forever. He wants that. And he wants it even more when he remembers that he's here temporarily. And that's by a funeral. He says, how, how do I get more assets? Is there any anything spiritual that I can still access, that I can get, that I can add to my portfolio, that I can add to my arsenal, that I can bring with me in my spiritual agenda? the great spiritual benefits of the birthright, the august burial spot. Jacob is motivated to pursue that at a funeral. Ace had a very different definition of life. It prioritizes a very different set of values. And when each of them were confronted with the notion of our life here being temporary... They instinctively sought to increase their life. Jacob, for what he valued. Esav, for what he valued. The birthright, that, that's spiritual. The burial spot, that's spiritual. And that's coveted by Jacob. Esav is the pursuit of the body. What about your burial spot? A burial spot? That's after you're dead. Your body doesn't, you can't enjoy any physical pleasure after you die. Throw me into a ditch. What do I care? Give me the give me the gold. <laughs> you know what I can do with that gold? That big pile of gold and silver? 
All kinds of physical delicacies and experiences can be acquired with that gold and silver. Give it to me. I don't need the birthright. I don't need the burial spot. Who a person is. What they're living for. What they value. That can be determined by how they respond to the inevitability of their demise. When Jacob went to the funeral, he emerged with motivation to seek out more spiritual pursuits. Asaph at the funeral had the opposite inclination to pursue more physical and material goods. This is, I think, a fun lesson. Well, I, don't know if, I don't know how fun it was. It started off as fun, but it got kind of dark. I apologize for that. But it's a powerful lesson to wrap up 2022 with. None of us are going to live forever. But we have something that's the most valuable thing in the world. And that's the opportunity to maximize life. And we all want to maximize life. But what does life mean? What are we trying to do here? What's it all about? What's the goal of living? What are we trying to accomplish? Our soul knows the answer very clearly. The Yitzhara tries to distort our vision, tries to blind us, tries to obfuscate, tries to create all sorts of opacity, all kinds of other things interfere with our life. We're not going to be here forever, but the repercussions and consequences of our choices, that will endure forever. And we have a choice. Which world do we prioritize? The permanent or the temporary? The eternal or the fleeting? A7 and Jacob really give us a stark contrast. What's life all about? Maybe this can even be an exercise to think about. After all, the Talmud tells us that this is something we should remember. If you knew your life here was temporary, what would you do? How would you prepare? And now, once you know how to prepare, if it's something which is actually eternally valuable, I say, just tell us. Return to God the day before you pass. Well, when's that? Could be today, could be tomorrow. If you live your life with the recognition of what you want out of life and realize that you're not going to be here forever and try to stockpile as much as you can while you're still here, you'll end up in a very, very good place. And not forget the earlier lesson. Everything is balanced. And there's no test that you cannot overcome. Let's get to a question to help raise our intelligence. You know that everyone wants to be a little smarter, especially in today's economy. You have the chat, GPT-3, the AI, AGI is coming to replace us. All this machine learning, everyone's going to be fired from their jobs. These are, of course, the doomsdayers. And maybe there's some truth to it. Who knows? But everyone wants to get a little smarter, a little more intelligent. How do you raise your IQ? There's only one way. 
people think, well, maybe you play, you play chess or Sudoku, eats lots, lots of yogurts with probiotics, omega-3. The truth is there's one way to increase your IQ, and that's to study Torah. Torah is the one thing that's clinically proven to increase your intelligence. It takes the fool and makes them wise. So we're trying to, we're trying to raise our IQ. Ah, of course, our partial IQ, but also our, our general intelligence. So we have a question, a fun question. Why are Jews called Jews? The Jewish people were called Yehudim from Judah. Yehuda, Judah. We're called Jews because of Judah. Why? Why not Joseph's? We could be the Joseph nation or the Abraham nation. Why Judah? So maybe there's a historical answer to that. There was the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel and the northern kingdom of Israel was sacked and destroyed and relocated by Sancheirev, the Assyrians, and that's the 10 lost tribes and only the tribe of Judah or the kingdom of Judah remains and therefore De facto, we are Jews from Judah. Maybe that's one answer. The Svasemis in the beginning of our parasha tells us something really interesting. Judah means appreciation, acknowledgement, and recognition. A Jew, the definition of a Jew is that we acknowledge and recognize God. The parasha starts off, Judah approaches him. Says the Sfas Emes, this is the story of our nation. We, Judah, we approach him. We approach God. And how do you approach God? With Yehuda, with the qualities of recognition of God, of acknowledgement of his dominion and appreciation of all the goodness that he does for us. It's a short little piece that he says. I think it's just a valuable takeaway. We're Jews. In our bones is our fidelity and affinity and affiliation to God. We recognize him. We submit ourselves to him. We appreciate all that he does for us on our behalf. And we approach him. We can go over to him and communicate to him what we want. I thank you for listening. I thank you for listening not just to this podcast, to all the podcasts of 2022, and for your incredible support of our organization, keeping the flame of Torah from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, keeping it going and strong. I apologize for the thing that made you upset. Well, it was my intention, but I was trying to make sure that you'll never forget this. Have an incredible rest of your day, a fantastic rest of your week, and a Splendid, uplifting, meaningful, peaceful, and serene Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will gather together again in good health and in great spirits to study the parasha next week. As always, my address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.